they're taking part of the risk and you're exposed to some of the risk depending on the contract. And so in a sense, yeah. they're sharing, there's doing the, there's a little risk sharing going on. Absolutely. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. It seems like you're a little bit rusty there. I'm a little bit rusty, <laughs> but, I, but I'm a pro, so I just kept on with That's it. right. I loved how you... Uh... You, you faltered for a moment, and I and I saw you just pick yourself up and carry on. Yeah, there was one. There was one time early on in the sort of whole uh, online learning thing, and Oregon State was early into it. And I decided, and they they were like trying to get people to put classes together, and so I volunteered to do one. And uh, my brother worked in media. It's a long story, but the idea was he's got he had this whole sort of teleprompter thing, and they could do a whole fancy screen thing. The point was I had to get through a whole term's worth of lectures in his studio in one day. I had to do that when I taught a beer class at PSU. Yeah. It was so you, rugged. So you probably know, like, I had, like, three or four false starts within, like, the first 15 minutes. And I suddenly realized, no, 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 this is not going to work. I'll never get through it. And uh, so I realized the answer was just to just to push through whatever whatever mistakes I make, whatever fumbles I make. And in the end, it was better anyway because the students felt like I was more human that's right so anyway so i'm human hello everybody i'm not ai yet verisimilitude but pretty that's, soon that's what we that's what we offer you confidently <laughs> but, and uh unapologetically but pretty soon i will be an ai so uh enjoy me while you can plug and play i know i don't know why people are so afraid of ai that'd be great we can just sit around drinking beer and have the ai talk through the show exactly it and, can't be any worse <laughs> yeah and <laughs> imagine all the money we'll make oh wait a minute, we don't make it oh that's right yeah, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> Why do we so. do this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would enjoy probably an AI beer show. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, what's new with you? Fall, um, fall is here. Yeah, fall is here. Got to, got to comment on the weather. Leaves are turning yellow, starting to fall. They are. Uh, clouds are back. Uh, we get we're getting that classic fall weather. Some days it's rainy. Some days it's cloudy. Some days it's nice. Uh, yesterday was nice. Today is cloudy. It's going to get nice, though. That's I why I have my shorts on. I know. You keep saying that, but it gets later and later in the day, and it's not getting nice. So, Don't worry. It it's could, coming. The clouds coming. may win today. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just back from Wisconsin. Yeah, I was going to say. Speaking of beer, had states. Fun. We weren't speaking either, but we were going to speak of beer. Uh, and, um, yeah, I... Went back to the homeland. You went back to the homeland. You have not been to back back to Madison since the 1990s. Crazy. How did it look to you? 1994. It looks humongous. So Madison, yeah. I had to look this up because I was so overwhelmed. Uh, it's um, more than double when you and I were there, left in 1994. And then when I left the first time, I, I graduated high school in 86. It's almost triple that size. So uh, it's big. Yeah, it is. It's big. boomed. It is. Like, who who would have thunk that some little town in the Midwest would boom like that? But I guess it did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, the city is built on an isthmus between two giant lakes. And so the, particularly the area that's on that isthmus has gone up. So it feels like a big city, too. Yeah, a lot of, um, like, 10 to 15-story condo towers and things like that. So, yeah, it's gotten very vertical. And even the University of Wisconsin yeah. has been doing a lot of building, and they are building these big, tall buildings as well because um, they're size, uh, space constrained. By the way, was the humanities building, the old brutalist architecture <laughs> building, was it still there? Is it's still it? there. They have a plan to, to replace it finally. Uh-huh. Old leaky. That's what I heard. That, when I heard that two years ago when I was there, though, they said they were going to replace it. It so. takes a while. It yeah. takes a while. I think it's in the works. It's still there in all its glory and all its leakiness. Uh, it's just about the worst building in the world, for those of you who don't know. Um, it is hideous. But I mean, they have built so many new buildings, and they have rebuilt new ones. We were in the new Union South building, which is brand new, brand completely rebuilt. By brand new, I mean since 94. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Both of the gyms they rebuilt, the surf that we I used to go, um, the Southeast Recreation Facility is now called the Nick, the Nicholas something, and it's beautiful and glamorous uh, i was there because i took my son who's interested in maybe going to school there so 
we had to see, I mentioned this to you off air, but I was trying to commit, I was trying to give him a little dose of reality about what winter's like in Wisconsin. And I said, see this big giant lake? We were looking out at the Union across Lake Mendota. And I said, this whole thing freezes over. That was kind of impressive to him. But then he right. thought, oh, that's, then he said, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's cool and cold, really cold. Yeah. But we had a good time. We went to the Raskeller, which is the, the uh, well, the Raskeller and then the adjacent Stiffskeller are the beer, mm-hmm. the beer hall in the Moral Union at Wisconsin, makes sense. It had bratwurst and beer. Very good. So basically, a, he is a he is now a, an official Wisconsinian. That's right. Now he's <laughs> now he's had it, probably prepared in the proper way, not the weird Iowa way. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, ongoing annals of uh, proper brat making. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the true Wisconsin brat. None of this crazy Iowa stuff. That's right. Uh, actually, that was the sad part of our trip. Oh, that it's the true. University of, of Iowa, Iowa did, in fact, get their comeuppance. Uh, it was literally the worst football game I've ever seen. It was a. It was the highlight of our trip going to Wisconsin versus Iowa, and Wisconsin managed to, to score two t- two uh, uh, field, field goals. goals. Was it thirteen to six? Is that memory serves? It was, was like a nineteen fifty be- score. I think like. it was fifteen to six. Oh, 15. But that also includes uh, a safety. A safety. Yeah. yeah. It was that bad. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> But the great thing about uh, a Wisconsin football game is that there are so much ritual that I assume that the crowd kept themselves entertained. Yeah, yeah, it was good ritual, and and uh, Andrew got to see a real marching band, which in Oregon, which in the Northwest you just don't have. I don't care. I don't care who you are. We don't have real marching bands. Wow, throwing down the gauntlet there. <laughs> I like. <laughs> just it. look look around. I like. If you it. want a real marching band? You got to go to the real Midwest Big Ten, not of this faux West Coast Big Ten. Uh, and he was completely befuddled by it. It's like, why do people like this? What is good about this? And I'm like, no, no, you have to understand. This is serious. Like people, this is the goal to get onto the marching band and it's really competitive and you have to try out and you can get scholarships and he didn't get it. But I said, this is the deal about going somewhere else. You learn the new culture. That's right. When we were living there, we could hear the band uh, practicing. Yep. Uh, I think it was basically every day. Like, it's a really big deal. You yeah, they do it every day. In fact, they have their own turf practice field just for the band to practice on. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a big, big, big deal. Nice. Uh, and I had fun. But the the game was so bad. Usually, as you know, the tradition is you stay after the game for the quote-unquote fifth, fifth quarter, quarter, which is yeah. when the band does a big concert. They do one at halftime, too, but... The fifth quarter is their big concert. Got to do the chicken dance and the various things. <laughs> Very good. Yes, you remember. <laughs> uh, but the, everyone was so sad that they just the the stadium emptied out. Like I didn't even stay for it. I'm like, okay, let's go. Uh, it was depressing. bad. It was depressing. bad. But let's let's move on to more happy topics. But it was still it was a fun trip. Went to uh, uh, Minnesota as well, and um, it was good. Go Gophers. Go Gophers. Uh, okay, so we should talk about. Uh, what we're doing today because we better get to it um, and not waste too much more time. Today we're joined by hop grower Max Coleman for a special edition of Beeronomics. Hops are a very unusual crop. See, I'm very rusty. Sold only to a single industry for one purpose. How does this business relationship work? We're going to ask Max how he knows which hops to grow and how many, how the market for hops works, and so on. All that soon, but first, the In anticipation of our guest today, we have an all hops news roundup. In our first item, uh, last month, the UN's World Heritage Arm, UNESCO, designated, and this is why I'm reading this first one, Patrick, not you, Zatech, the historical Czech hop region, a world heritage site. They cited the region's authenticity by noting that, quote, the locations of hop fields have not changed, nor has the presence of watercourses and historic communications networks. Rural settlements that served as bases for the farmed lands have largely preserved their forms. The built environment has a high degree of authenticity, including individual buildings, farmsteads, and former estates. The buildings in the historic center of Zatech display authentic signs of an older traditional method of drying hops in lofts. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Go Zatech, man. I hope that the climate preserves... Zatech as well. Well, funny thing. That, that's a perfect lead-in for the second item. Oh, all right. Should we move right on to it? Yeah. We'll stay in Central Europe for the second item. 
Writing in the science journal Nature, researchers compared two periods, 1971 to 1994 and 1995 to 2018, to assess the current changes and then projected the changes expected by 2050. The changes in the second period show significant declines in yield and alpha acid content, and authors noted that hop ripening now begins three weeks earlier than it did in the first time window of the study. Looking forward, the 10 authors write that by 2050 they expected a predicted decline in hop yield and alpha content of 4 to 18% and 20 to 31%, uh, I assume respectively, by 2050. Correct. However, there is good news. The use of irrigation and other techniques may address some or all of the current declines. Yeah. All right, so we can talk about both of these together. Go Satech. Hopefully, That's right. get some irrigation in there. That doesn't violate the World Heritage uh, conditions, I'm sure. No, and, and the, the interesting thing about this study was that, uh, of course, it's a linear relationship with geography. So the further south you are, the worse it is. And yeah. actually, the Czech farms were the least affected in this study that they right. did because they're the furthest north. Yeah. Um, and just in case people were not clear, Zatech is the Czech word for the more common word we know uh, in German, which is Saz. Ah, you saved that one for me. Oh, nice. That's really nice. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Zatech is Saz. Okay. Yeah. So the center of Saz hops. Yep. Exactly. Ah, see, look at what I learn every day by hanging out with you, Jeff. Indeed. And I have <laughs> I have been to the town of Zatech and I've seen the uh, Czech hop farm, uh, harvest. And is it world heritage worthy? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah sure. It sure. Um, it is a cool old region. And in fact, it felt very, it felt like going back in time watching this, uh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, harvest. I mean, not, you know, they had trucks and stuff. It wasn't like guys out there with, in, with <laughs> donkeys. And... Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it was definitely cool. Ah, excellent. Yeah. So, and, and, and the good news on this, the second piece, uh, which I wrote about in the, the, the blog, uh, is that, um, they so they and I think we've talked about this before. They don't irrigate at all, mm-hmm. and one of the big problems is irrigation affects the the alpha content and the uh, the yield. It's a big thing. Yeah. So just beginning to irrigate is going to help that, um, and then they can do other things to mitigate some of the heat and sun related stuff too. So I think I think it's actually not going to be an end of the world. They're just going to have to change the farming practices to look more American. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, brilliant editing there, Jeff. Two hop-related news items. Thank you. That bring us right into our today's interview, the the, the point of today's podcast, which That's is right. all about hop farming. It is. And kind of mostly about the business of hop farming. Yes. Because this is beeronomics. So you know all about the hops. You know the stuff they do to beer. You know the different flavors. But how, where do those hops come from? How do they make decisions about what to plant? What, uh, and so on. Is all... Uh, um, topics of the discussion we had with Max Coleman of Coleman Farms. That's right. We have the expert who can tell us what's going on because he's in the biz. And so. as a special bonus, he's an econ grad, a recent econ grad, so he knows of what he speaks. Yeah, and, and as, as you listen to this, uh, at the end, Patrick goes on to a little bit of a jag, and I have to tell you, we, we recorded it on Zoom, and uh, Patrick talks a little bit about economics uh, at the end, and he just looks chuffed uh, to see... <laughs> Max uh, and see a young uh, econ graduate out in the world doing good econ work. So, Absolutely, yeah. I saw, I saw the pride of uh, pride of discipline on on Patrick's face. One hundred percent. All right. Well, <laughs> why don't we uh, turn to Max? All right. Today joining us is Max Coleman from uh, Coleman Farms. The first Colemans arrived in Oregon from Iowa in 1847 and have been farming in the verdant Willamette Valley for seven generations. The family farms hazelnuts, seed crops, and a variety of vegetables, and of course, hops across 2,500 acres of farmland. Max is one of the new generation who will lead the Coleman's into the future. He has a degree in economics, way to go Max, so he's the perfect person to walk us through this very unusual agricultural product. Hi Max, thanks for joining us. Hey Patrick. Hey Jeff. Hi Max, we're really happy to have you here. Uh, We're gonna talk a little bit about the business of hops, because. On this podcast over the last few years, we've talked a lot about the flavor of hops, but uh, it's a very weird crop. So we thought, who better than you to walk us through this? Um, it's kind of a beeronomics in a way, because all of this is the the weird economics of this strange crop. Um, so why don't we get started and uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what's different in growing 
hops from the other crops that you grow, like physically, but also the market? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the biggest piece for us is labor is a huge thing with any specialty crop, but especially hops. Uh, it drives a lot of the difference in costs. Um, and you still have um, a fair amount of infrastructure with other crops, but it looks a little different when you're buying a combine or leasing it than when you're building something where you have to build a building and do a lot of that kind of really permanent infrastructure in order to harvest. Um, so like grass seed, for instance, we have a seed cleaner, um, but that was a move we decided to make. Uh, it's not something you need to harvest your crop. You can send it through a custom processing plant. Um, so yeah, I think the biggest piece is really about the labor on the kind of producing side. Um, and there's also know-how. It's not perfect competition by any means. There's definitely a lot of barriers to entry um, in terms of expertise um, and capital investment, as well as just kind of the labor pool is also one of those things that, you know, you can only pick hops and pro hops if you have people there who know how to help you do it. So remind us, we Patrick and I uh, did talk a little bit about the hop harvest, but remind us a little bit about the the things that are different in physically in terms of um, the what the field looks like and how you harvest them and how you process them. Yeah, I mean, it all kind of starts with a, in the U.S., it's usually about 18 foot uh, trellis. Uh, so it's a bunch of poles and wires that hold up the hops. They support the strings or um, wires that you're growing the crop on. Um, so they grow up a string in the spring. Um, so there's a lot of specialized work that you're doing then uh, as you string the hops and then train them up. And then eventually you're harvesting them by at least most folks cut them down and bring them back to a centralized picking machine. Um, all of our locations have Donhauer pickers, which are kind of an old standby. Though there's some other options, German pickers and other things as well um, that other folks use. And so you bring them all back to the picking machine with trucks. And then you unload from there, goes through a whole contraption, strips everything, separates the cones from all the stuff you're not looking for, which goes and gets composted. And then it goes to a dryer and there's a fair amount of know-how. Uh, one of the things we always talk about is like, you can ruin a whole year's worth of work in 30 minutes to an hour over drying your hops or under drying your hops. Uh, so it's not the least stressful job on the farm. I did it for a while and it was, one of those things your first floor you ever call is like you you check like three to five times more than you need to because you want to be certain and you can still mess up if something's a little different but uh, max the the trellises themselves they last season through season and then the strings are what you do every year yep the trellis you do make some replacements we jokingly call it truck or tractor blight um, which is where <laughs> someone runs something into a post and it breaks <laughs> off right <laughs> Uh, they tend to last a little longer up north in some drier climates because the wood doesn't break down as quickly. Um, but yeah, you you go through every year and you make wintertime adjustments. So we're working on that right now when it's dry enough, kind of pulling out old rotten posts and replacing them. Um, and then after the winter, but before you start stringing, you basically, you have to tighten them back all up because they do get a little bit of sag and they kind of stretch and they contract and expand with the changes in temperature. And then in the spring, you you string the strings. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's literally like contraptions for that. We call them stringing carts. And every farmer has their own way of doing it. Some people go across the rows, which is pretty common. Other people go down the rows. Um, <laughs> there's, it's, it's specialized, but it's also a lot of stuff that like you send out for somebody to build or you build in your own shop if you have one. We've we've seen other states try to get hops going, and um, they've never really taken off as much. And I I've I've often speculated that this has to do with the the incredible amount of infrastructure and kind of experience and knowledge you have to have at the outset. And I'm just curious, you know, compared to other crops, is is this an expensive startup? Is there a lot of capital investment in this crop versus other crops? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. When you're talking about like a full scale commercial, like call it 300, 600 acre hop farm, you're talking in the millions just to get going. Mm -hmm. um, and that's on the picking side. Uh, so there's even more than that, putting in all the trellis um, and knowing how to put one up. Because if you put one up and then it doesn't work out, uh, you're out a lot, even more money at that point. 
Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely a piece of it. And I think too, um, some of it is the climate and the know-how. Um, I mean, the hops are something that you can't, you know, kind of check on a couple, like once a month sort of thing. You've got to be pretty much out there all week, every week from when they come out of the ground to when you pick them. Um, cause they, they are pretty susceptible to some diseases and pests and things. And they're things that get out of control really quickly. Hmm. So. And the, so is the main variable that you can control the, the, uh, application of water. Do you also have chemical pesticides and things you use or? Yeah. Yeah. We are, we're a conventional farm. So we have kind of the full toolkit. Um, some yeah. folks can grow organic. Uh, it doesn't work quite as well in Oregon generally. Um, yeah. the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, water, herbicides, fertilizer, that sort of thing. And then there's a lot of piece about timing, um, which, mm. uh, especially with stringing and training. So generally you want to have the strings in before or right around when they come out of the ground. Um, and right. then you want to train and we train generally in harvest order. Um, so strata and centennial are always first mosaics always last. Um, mm -hmm. but with, as weather changes, different things happen and it changes up a bit. So, uh, it's always a little bit of a historical, but also a little bit by your gut, what you yeah. think's ready. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, moving into the business side. What, one of the things that's another thing that's unusual about hops is you keep them in the fields, right? They're perennial. So you, uh, you can continue to grow them year after year. But when you do, I guess there's some kind of upside and downside to that. It means that pulling out hops is not just like planting a new a new crop in a in an empty field. So how does that whole process work? Where do you get your? Do you buy rhizomes or rootstock? What do you buy, and how do you? Uh, where do you get that? Yeah, it depends on who you're working with. Um, with some patented varieties, they'll sell you rhizomes. Other ones, they'll sell you rootstock or uh, little baby plants. Um, it really just depends. There's generally nurseries that propagate them. Some of them are hop farmers and nursery operators. Other people are just strict nursery operators. Um, so like for indie hops, we plant plants because that's their preferred method. But for some of the other folks we've worked with, sometimes they do plants, sometimes they do root stock. Um, and if it's a public variety, you can go and dig your own roots. Um, so you can go into an established field and dig them up. Though at that point, you are running a risk if there's a virus or viroid of spreading that. Um, so there's definitely, there's some costs and benefits there. Yeah, we're, that word so, viroid is interesting and I want to come back to that. But what, uh, yeah, Patrick, what, are we, what did you have there? So you have this sort of incentive to, to keep the existing stock because it's cheaper. But of course, you also have an ever-evolving craft beer scene that you're trying to supply. And so how is it that you manage this sort of ever-shifting sands of demand? That's a great question. I mean, contracts is the biggest piece for us. We try not to grow anything that we don't have sold. Um, okay. And some of those are longer. Some of those are shorter. Some of those are great prices. Some of those are prices you'd rather not have. Uh, it really just depends. Yeah. So can you just explain a little bit? These, yeah. these are contracts with hop brokers or are these contracts with actual end consumers? Uh, we, we have both. Uh, we grow still a little bit. So we work with about seven different entities we sell hops to um smallest contracts probably ten thousand pounds um so it really runs a range um generally if we're growing direct it'll be with a large macro brewer so somebody like anheuser-busch or molson Coors. um and then if it's a not one of those we don't really sell direct uh most people aren't looking for whole cone right. at this point so all of our other products <laughs> pretty much goes through a processor of some sort um right Right. And these contracts, they're like true futures contracts. So it's a set price and volume. Yeah, some will do okay. kind of um, consignment models sort of things. But generally, it's a it's a set price. And sometimes there's a escalator for inflation. Sometimes there's not. So <laughs> you, you hope yeah, you get the one that, that builds in a little growth. But yeah. So yeah, and trying do to you, keep on you, top of varieties uh, is a mess. <laughs> So, yeah. So you basically let those, the demand speak for itself. So if people are demanding next year, they want a whole bunch of more mosaic, then you'll respond in the field, but you're not trying to like guess. No. And I, we, there are folks that will plant speculatively or uh, if they've got like in this recent round, um, the hot market's in a little bit of a downturn. 
Um, so some folks have had to take out acres that were owned by a patent holder, uh, which you don't have any choice in. And so then they might pivot and put in, you know, alpha acreage or acreage in a public variety that they think has a little more legs um, and try and see what they can get for it. It's not as common as it used to be. Um, mm -hmm. I think folks have got burned on that. And yeah, I, I, it's something that we tend to avoid if we can. We like to have everything sold the minute the strings go up. So. And how, how long will a contract last? Uh, it really depends. Some of them are year to year. Some of them are three to five years. Some of them are three to five rolling. So they might be indefinite essentially until one party decides to cancel them. Um, yeah, it really depends. And the, the uh, patented varieties versus public varieties do kind of complicate those matters. Just some can be a little bit, they're, they're a lot more sticky generally when it's a patented variety because there's a someone who owns the rights to those plants or owns the plant itself so oh that's interesting so if they own the plant you plant them but it's still technically not yeah it's kind of a yeah it's an interesting situation it's hard to explain but yes essentially huh <laughs> you're the surrogate <laughs> yeah well you're you're basically the agent for that principle and then you're you're performing yeah. from there because you know how to raise it or have the capability. Right. Yeah. So the relationship, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense how it would work for a public plant, but how does the relationship work with a private, uh, a proprietary plant in, in the, in the business sense? So, uh, you, you buy, uh, the plant from, from somebody who has the rights to it, or you grow it for them. And then who do you, who do you sell that plant back to or who do you, who do you sell the hops to? yeah yeah so um there's different ways that people do it but generally um there's kind of two kinds of contracts there's a volume contract where you know you're selling x amount of pounds at y price and that's what it is uh and then there's i think of them as an acreage contract where everything that comes off of that acre goes back to the person and those tend to be a proprietary variety something like citra stratus and co um, where you're, you are, everything that comes off of that goes back to the broker uh, or the patent holder. Um, and some of those are a little more complex on their end of the business, but other ones aren't. Uh, some of it's very direct, but other ones, it, there's a couple more layers that we're not as involved in. You know, once we drop off our bales, it's, that's kind of our end of that piece. So. From the grower's perspective, I, I, Patrick, and you guys are both economists and I'm not, but uh, my, my sense is that the market sorts a lot of this out. But uh, in terms of, I, I think people probably have an idea that proprietary hops are more expensive. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, that that at the, particularly for the end user, they're going to be more expensive. But I'm wondering for from your perspective as a grower, does it really matter uh, since you're, I assume that price is priced in for you as the the grower who's selling it back so uh, how does all that work in terms of pricing do you have are you agnostic with regard to public versus private i don't know if i'm agnostic i think mostly we're letting demand speak for itself uh, we grow a fair amount of proprietary varieties we also still grow some publics um, but in the past we were probably more heavily weighted public but uh, we weren't quite as big of a farm then and we were growing mostly for macro brewers so at that point, are you, you know, how much freedom do you really have there? If you're, you know, you're locked in with one or two customers and that's all you've got. Uh, I think it's been mostly a demand driven thing. Um, and to some extent price, you know, if one thing is offering a better price than the other, it's going to cost me the same or similar to raise them. Why would I not go that way? Um, and I think that's another piece that's made other hop growing regions who are trying to get started have a little bit harder time. Because um, you can really easily get your hands on anything. There's sort of low barrier to entry on public variety. Um, but if your brewer down the road doesn't really need more Cascade or they're happy with the Chinook they have, then what incentive do they have other than buying local? It sounds like this is a pretty uh, intensive administrative project because you've got lots of different types of contracts, different types of uh, hops, different types of... Um, uh, customers as well so it sounds like there's a lot of um difficult administration and then how do you decide how best to allocate your resources i guess is um like do you say no to contracts yeah you can um and that's generally 
you know, it's, you're kind of looking at the acres you have and seeing what you think is what else is out there. And most uh, brokers are pretty, pretty clear if they're looking for more acres or if they're not. Um, And you get kind of a feel for where people are at. So one thing that's really fascinating to me, I was talking to uh, my, my friend, the great writer, Stan Hieronymus, uh, and he was talking about yield. And I had never tumbled to this because I'm not, I don't have economist brain. Uh, and he was pointing out that depending on the the hop variety, you may get double the amount of pounds out of a, an acre or or more even. Uh, so if if you're selling those for ten dollars an acre, let's say, or a pound, I mean, uh, let's say, and you get twice as much out of a field, <laughs> yeah. uh, that field that gives you twice as much is more profitable. So how mm-hmm. I think that's invisible to. Uh, you know, you just talk about hop varieties. It's kind of invisible to us how the how 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 the yield thing yeah. works out in terms of of profitability. So, what are some of the varieties that aren't high yield, and how how does the market handle the fact that you're not growing very many of those? Yeah, I mean, the one you normally think of is Centennial. Um, it's and it's it can be a higher yielder. It's never gonna um, you know break records or anything, but it's something that's quite a bit more variable. And generally, in order to induce farmers to plant and grow centennial, it's, you have to pay a higher price. Um, it's harder to get somebody to plant that when they can plant something that's, you know, and maybe it's, there's alpha, which is not as much of a uh, thing in the Oregon market. We just don't grow that many of those varieties. But up north in Washington and Idaho, that's definitely more of a piece where somebody might like the price of centennial and then look at the price they're going to get paid for, you know, pound or kilogram of alpha and decide, no, this is a safer bet here. Uh, because even if I won't, you know, catch the peak quite as much, I won't get caught in the valley either. Um, yeah. I mean, Centennial is usually the one you think of. Um, and, and the, the opposite is also true. A lot of the times on a known higher yielder, the price won't be as good <laughs> because they're, you know, you're kind of making that calculus and, you know, other ones are ones that are like a little bit more disease prone, something like a Simcoe, um, you know, you're, you won't pay a higher yielder like Strata or Mosaic prices for a Simcoe because you know it's not going to yield as much and it's a little bit harder to grow, uh, at least in Oregon. So. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those other factors. Uh, you mentioned the word viroid, which is a word I did not know re- regarding hops until this year. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also pests and other things. Talk about hops. What, what is a viroid? What are what? And, and we can talk about uh, pests and and powdery mildew and that kind of stuff. Wh- which you know what? So let's start with a viroid. What's a viroid and what does it do to a hop? I don't hundred percent know. Then this is probably on me <laughs> for not being super clued in. Like I know what they are and I know what they look like. Generally, the implications are yield um, in plant health and vigor uh, for because there's viruses and viroids. Um, so like there's hop stunt, apple mosaic virus, some of these other ones, and you'll see damage on the plants. Uh, and then you'll also see a drop off in yield. Uh, and it's something that it can live in the soil. Some of them, it's not a problem until you get a wound on the plant. It really just depends. They all have kind of different things, but um, there's something that the industry is refocusing on because um, there's fields that you're you know, they weren't planted 30 years ago, yet you're seeing a drop off in yield or plant health looks a little off. Um, and so you notice that and then you start doing some testing and you go, oh, well, that's why it's got this, this, and this. And now all of a sudden it's not an economically viable field. Um, so something that you're, you're always keeping an eye out for. And it's not one of the things that you necessarily scout for every day. And it's like one of the ones where it's like, oh, okay, I know that looks like mite damage, or I know that looks like this. Usually it's like, uh, something's not right, but I'm not 100% what it is, sure what it is. So, yeah. So, uh, are there particular varieties that are prone to disease? I don't know off the top of my head. I know there's some that are supposed to be, or sorry, there's diseases and then there's the viruses. And I yeah, kind of think of them as separate. Um, so, there's like external pathogens and internal almost. Right. Um, and so like a downy mildew, mildew or powdery mildew, yeah, there's some that are susceptible to those. Um, and then it's not necessarily aligned with what's susceptible to the viruses and viroids. Like I know 
Um, we had a field that had laminates in it for a while and they always looked a little off. Um, we did a little bit of testing and they had one of either the viruses or viroids. Um, so we got some advice from a Oregon State Professor Dave Gent, hey, try planting cascades there because they're not really affected by that one. Um, so we did that and they looked a lot better even though it was the same field. Um, so certain varieties definitely respond differently. Um, and there's some research out there that, you know, maybe that little bit of plant stress will, and maybe it's not research, that might be a little strong, but a little bit of that plant stress might induce some other character in the hops. Um, so it might be something where, you know, it hurts your yield, but maybe it gives you a guava note that you wouldn't get out of this hop normally. Um, so there's a little bit of a, there's a push to clear it up and replant virus infected stuff elsewhere. So uh, replant with clean stock in different fields. Um, so we're, we're working our way through that process, but there's also people who are like, well, maybe I don't want to replant all of them just yet. So. One last thing on what, uh, on the planting side, before we get to kind of the, the broker side, which I'm fascinated about. Um, you mentioned that Oregon doesn't grow a lot of alpha varieties. Mm -hmm. uh, Oregon has a slightly different uh, growing region than Washington, Idaho. What, what care, so why don't we grow more alpha varieties and what, what characterizes Oregon in terms of what you grow? Yeah, I mean, Oregon's been known for aroma hops for a long time. We have grown alpha hops. Um, we used to have nuggets, millenniums, things like that. Um, I think some of it is the timing, because generally you pick alpha hops later. Um, and there's some science that maybe that was a little bit of folktales getting passed down, that the longer you wait, the more your alpha goes up. Um, but either one way or another, uh, generally the problem with Oregon is if you wait too long, you start getting rain. And rain on a full hop yard can bring it down. Um, we had some neighbors that had that happen this year. Um, if they just have enough weight on that trellis, they can't hold it. And then it'll find a weak point and fail. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it for the alpha. And then uh, the other thing that characterizes Oregon is because we don't have quite as much heat. Yes, we have more abundant water, which is great. A lot of respects. Um, but because we don't get the heat units. Um, we can't plant a field and then have it go into three-quarter production the first year. Um, so generally we have what's called a baby year, um, which is confusing. Some people say the baby year is the first year you put it on the string. Uh, and other people would say the baby year is the year you plant it. But either way, if I plant something this May, I wouldn't expect to harvest on it that first year. I would expect a, a 70 to 80% harvest on it the following year. So it won't even reach peak full production until its second year on the string, as is what we would expect. And back to Patrick's earlier comment, this probably really governs how you think about what you're planning future. You're <laughs> that's a, yeah. it's a it's a big it's a big ramp up time. So this is not a move on a dime kind of business. Yeah, you definitely don't. And we've grown. I mean, we were one of the first two farms to get Strata back when it was X three three one from Indie Hops, and it's something that, you know, you don't go out and plant the whole farm just because, oh, the broker's pretty sure they've got a home run here. And Jim nailed it with Strata. It's a great hop, uh, both for us and for brewers. But uh, it's one of those things that, especially in Oregon, you know, turning on a dime isn't a thing. Um, whereas, you know, if you have your acreage moved around or, you know, you have to replant for virus, it's a little less of a, I mean, not that anybody wants to take hops out of the ground, but it's something where you can make that adjustment in a little quicker turnaround. And I think generally uh, some of the folks we work with are very aware of that. So, you know, if you're looking at switching varieties, there's a little bit more of that. Okay, well, if we want this this year from you guys, we need you to plant it in this year so that, you know, there's that gap in between uh, rather than being like, well, sorry, you know, deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, okay, let's talk about brokers because this is a an element of the business that is a little bit mystifying even to me uh, all, all these years later. How how does a broker work? What is a broker? What do they do? Talk, talk about brokers. Yeah, I mean, they're for us. So since we don't pelletize or really sell direct other than to somebody who uses whole cone or has the connections to get it pelletized or put in whatever format, extract, et cetera, they want. Um, hot brokers are kind of that middleman. 
Um, you know, if I grow a 10 acre field, there's, I don't think I could get enough sales done in order to sell all the hops off that 10 acre field. And most breweries don't want, you know, 10,000 pounds of laminates or whatever. And so you're trying to find buyers for the whole field. And so the broker does a lot of that work for you. Additionally, um, they're pelletizing, they're making advanced products, they're storing, they're doing some of the traceability things and making it so that your product can get out to the brewer who's the end consumer who then makes a beer and then gets it to their end consumer. So uh, a lot of their work is based around really trying to connect, you know, farmer to grower. And some of them, that's literally their mission. Like we are a grower owner in the Acme Chief, and that is their mission is to connect farmers and brewers. Logistically, how this works is you grow the hop, you you dry it, you bale it, and then you you send the bales to a broker who will then do whatever they're going to do with that. They may they may pelletize yep. it, they may put it into a hop product, they do whatever they're going to do. They may sell it <laughs> as a whole hop to one of the two breweries that still uses whole hop. <laughs> yes, correct. That's how that works. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a big thing now that wasn't true, you know, 10 years ago, even people really want to get their hops in cold storage and lock in as much of that character uh, and, you know, not degrade any more than you have to. Um, so we're delivering them to cold storage, like the day they're bailed, they're out of there. Yeah. Uh, so. And am I right that um, this is not exactly what you do, but am I right that, um, once those hops are in cold storage, they are pretty stable for years uh, without degrading much. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of research on there's whole cone, cone storage where it's still there's access to oxygen. Right. Um, and then there's once it's been processed, it's generally in a flushed uh, neutral gas environment. Right. Um, so I think there's different things. I What I and I don't know if this is research from 20 years ago, if this is research from now, but I feel like I remember reading something about, you know, it, when they're in a bale, you're trying to limit the surface area exposed to oxygen, but a bale and a whole cone is a little bit better at resisting oxygen penetration than something like a pellet, which has so much more surface area relative to like what can be degraded. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, they, they they tend to be pretty good. Usually, I think industry standard, once it's been processed, is three to four years. Um, and I think that's like a conservative kind of like, a you know, your milk's best by this date, but it's still pretty good, you know, a day after that or two days after or whatever. So, yeah, I, I mean, I assume for the industry, that's pretty good because uh, this is going to smooth out some of the, the volatility and the risk that everybody takes because you can yeah. put those into warehouses and they're still usable. Yeah. And I do think brewers, there's been a little bit of a, you know, getting used to, okay, just because the hop was picked two years ago, doesn't mean it's bad. Like the alpha might be down a little bit, but it's still in high quality. Um, so there's a little bit of that hurdle kind of education that, you know, brewers who maybe were brewing 20 years ago were like, oh, I'd never touch a hop that's that old. And it's like, well, no, it's in pretty good shape. They've, they've gotten better just like you've gotten better. So I just want to sort of get the market. Right, because it's fascinating to me. So you have a broker comes along and you say, I have a hundred acre field of Citra. I'm like, okay, I'll buy that next year at this price, maybe with a band or something like that. And then depending on the yield, do they just take whatever volume or are you actually contracting for a set number of pounds or bales of, of hops? Depends on who you work with. Generally, they have a yield target. Uh, and sometimes that's based on that specific field if you've had it in for a certain amount of years. Um, but they've got some sort of yield target. And there are some brokers who will take in all those bales, basically, because if you have a long year and someone else has a short year, it kind of all evens out. Um, and then there's other folks who, you know, uh, we're a little long right now. So with those extra bales, they take them in and then they're responsible for either extracting them or doing something else with them. And those brokers, they turn around and they're selling contracts for next year's Citra as well. And so they're taking part of the risk and you're exposed to some of the risk depending on the contract. And so in a sense, yeah. they're sharing, there's doing them. There's a little risk sharing going on. Absolutely. And, you know, contracts are something we like because I don't want to have to turn around and replant and replant and replant. And also, right. you know, it's pretty expensive to raise something if you're not sure you can sell it. Um, yeah. So that's where, you know, brokers 
also want contracts from brewers because they are kind of locked in with us farmers. They need a commitment on the brewer yeah. side, which, uh, you know, no one's perfect at forecasting. So there's always a little bit of, you know, variability in that, but that's, yeah. What's different about Yakima Chief, um, yep. all I know is that it's sort of a, a growers cooperative. Is that correct? Is that? Yeah. So Yakima Chief was, uh, originally there was Yakima Chief Hops and Hop Union. They merged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think that is when the, the cooperative piece started, but I'm not a hundred percent. And so, yeah, there's grower owners now, um, and they all are involved in making decisions, sit on the board, that sort of thing for them. Um, and then, you know, you deliver into it. And we still grow for folks outside of the Yakima Chief, but we also grow for Yakima Chief. So bringing this all together, all, all back home, as a, as a hop grower, how do you factor in all the, we just talked about a whole bunch of different variables. Uh, it's, it's like a really complex business because you're not just growing um, you know, one, one, you're not just growing peas, you're actually growing all these different kinds of peas, which they go to one market, but, you know, someday, so, some year, maybe they don't want that kind of pea. <laughs> they're, just, mm-hmm. they're not really into uh, a hop that has fallen out of favor. So, uh, but then you've got yield and you've got the various things that affect the yield, like, like, viruses and the costs like you know all these things mm-hmm. how, how do you uh as you as you're going year to year to year uh how are you how are you thinking about your business how often do you as a farm sit down and decide what are we going to grow what, what what are we going to change like how dynamic is it for you to take all these factors into play uh as you're going yeah i mean i've only been back on the farm i guess this will be year five now I, you know, worked every summer and all that, but I was in college for a while getting my econ degree. Um, It's something that you spend a lot of time in the winter thinking about and kind of feeling out. Um, You might have a contract that, you know, yeah, we had that contracted for two years. So you're getting in touch with that broker and going, hey, are you still looking for this many pounds? What are we thinking about price? You're kind of feeling out everybody else in the market. Um, the other piece of it is have really good accountants, have people who know what they're doing and can help with your cash flow and your investments and things like that um, to make sure, you know, you're still there and able to work it. But uh, it's that's that's the million dollar question is really trying to or maybe more than that, uh, trying to figure out how to make the moves where you're not reactive, but you're proactive. Um, and, you know, there that is one piece that you can be a little bit more proactive if you feel like the market needs more cascade. You can plant cascade if you want. Uh, if you feel like the market needs more X proprietary variety, you can't just plant more of that. They need to agree. And they, you know, basically in those sort of transactions, the patent owner is coming to you and saying, hey, we would like you to plant more of this. I'm just going to say quickly that it's, and it's not just sort of what, how much to devote to each hop variety, but of course it's, how much acreage to devote to hops in general, because maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it's better to grant plant grain next year because the hop market's down or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of those pieces, you know, especially now where the market is a little bit down. Um, I think my dad has said he's seen seven, you know, peaks and valleys in the hop market <laughs> in the time he's been doing it. I'm on my first one. Um, but it's something where, you know, you've made a pretty significant investment, put up that trellis. So do you think you can keep it in hops? Do you wait a year? Do you wait and yeah. see? Do you pull out yeah. part of the trellis, but leave the other parts so you can still kind of farm but not be as efficient? Um, there's a lot of different options there. Um, but yeah, and then I think, Jeff, you kind of touched on it, but yeah, hops, yes, they're one big market, but because they're not perfect substitutes, um, and I think you would have a tough time convincing any brewer that they're the hop that they love, there's a perfect substitute from it. Um, even if you could show them all the science and whatever, but um, because they're not perfectly substitutable, I think you almost have a market for each hop. Um, and then it kind of plays a little bit in the overall market. Um, and that's something that, you know, we think about a lot here is what's our variety mix look like. And some of that too is operational, you know, your strata ripens at this time, you can't plant more stuff that ripens in that same win- window and not have the processing capacity we have all these new hops that are coming out constantly. And I bet consumers who have had them in beers, you know, get really excited about a hop. And when you look at the acreage, it's always very small. It seems like there's a lot of market friction, you know, 
everything we talked about, uh, there's a big risk to put put these new hops that haven't performed in the marketplace for a while. From your side, how many, how much new hop, like when you're thinking about adding a hop you've never grown before, uh, you know, McKinsey or Vista or something new that maybe it's proprietary or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, like how much do you want to risk putting one of those in the field versus an old reliable and how, you know, it's a hedge because it could be the next Citra, but like, how does that, how do you think about that? Yeah. Oh, that's always a question. I think generally you, you look at the operational piece first to see if it's even feasible. And then you work from there. Uh, Like I'm, I've tried some Vista beers and I think it's super interesting. It's public hop. So I could go out and plant, you know, 10 acres tomorrow if I wanted to don't think I will at this point because you want to see the market there. And, you know, I think there are other growers who are a little bit more, not or less risk averse is probably the right way to put it. They're willing to take that gamble because they believe either in the hop or that, you know, the market's out there, there's a way to get it done. Um, or they have a contract that they're happy to grow it at. But um, generally we don't like to grow anything right on spot. Um and so it at that point it becomes you have to look at your appetite for risk and ours is pretty low um and and the other pieces operationally uh, most of our fields kind of have to be 10 acres <laughs> just in order to make it work during harvest um, mm-hmm. we have some that are five and nobody's happy when you get to that one field of five <laughs> acres of that variety because it's super inefficient it makes your job a lot harder uh brewers are sad when they want a fresh hop with that because they have like three hours, four hours to get there and <laughs> pick it up and then get back. And that's usually on some sort of holiday where they weren't planning on being in or something like that. So, and I, I feel for the brewers on that. It's never, you always want to be able to plan harvest down to the last hour, but you, you never quite can. So as much as we try. That's actually an interesting question. I didn't think about that, but yeah. When is it like, the day before that you realize, oh, they're, they're perfect. We got to harvest them. Is it a week before? Is it a month? How do you, how it's, soon do you know? It's probably within three days you can get a feel for it. And that's, I mean, wow. I didn't do too much of it this year, but my dad, that was his whole job. This harvest was go around, smell fields, see wow. what's next. And sometimes that's cross variety. Like you might be in yeah. Simcoe and realize, mm, by the time we finish the Simcoe, I think that Chinook's going to be too late or whatever. And so then you have to right. jump out of one and jump back into it again later, which is, of course, horribly inefficient. Um, right. So, yeah. And then, you know, your brewer that's coming to pick up and they're like, yeah, I want 3000 pounds at this date. And I've got a refrigerated truck lined up to drive it to bend there. You're all of a sudden like, well, uh, uh, yeah. It came Especially early. It's kind of like childbirth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can't can't plan it. Um, so. Yeah. And that's something where, you know, being a little bit larger and having a fair amount of most of our varieties, you can work a little bit and go, well, yeah, we're not picking that here this day, but we're picking it over here. Um, so you, you have a little bit more flexibility on the fresh hop side that way. Uh, all right. I have to ask this question and I'm going to ask it in an extremely leading way, but uh, <laughs> so it sounds like you have a really complicated constraint optimization problem on the farm. You're always trying to figure out where to put the input to get the maximum output. It also seems like you really need to understand risk. You need to understand the value of future money and all this stuff. And so how how important is it uh, to have an econ degree in your position? Uh, I think in about 10 years, I could give you a better answer about that. I'm still, I'm helping make decisions, but I'm not signing all the checks yet. Um, mm-hmm. so it's something where I, it's the, the way that it's how you view the world, I think is the most value in the econ degree. It's not necessarily yeah. sitting down and doing math, <laughs> especially in my job. It's not, it, that's just, I don't oh, have time to do. And, and that's a, per, that's a perfect answer for me. Cause I tell people that all the time. It's yeah. like understanding opportunity cost and understanding constraint constraints and resources and allocations and yeah. things like that it has has almost nothing to do with the actual math and the calculations so yeah I'm it's, it's it. how you think about it is really where it is and that's i mean yep. what you're talking about is what i actually wanted to write my econ thesis about and then i very quickly learned oh wait i don't have uh, i need to devote a whole lifetime to solving that problem and i would still never yeah. solve it so let's find something a little easier so i actually wrote about hop contracting 
uh, which was interesting because it made me think a lot more about what I made like a very rudimentary algebraic model of when would a hop farmer decide to contract, not decide to contract, risk aversion, that sort of stuff. And then when does a broker decide to contract was kind of implicit in that. Didn't get into the yeah. brewer side, but that's also a piece of the overall market too. Sounds fascinating. I have to read it sometime. Probably not. It may not have been. I, know, I, I have an undergraduate. I have an undergraduate yeah. thesis out there that's, somewhere uh, that I'm sure would be. I'm sure would be embarrassing, but you know, it's great. Yeah. Well, we should probably leave it there, Max. Uh, this has been incredibly enlightening for me. Um, I think it will be enlightening for everybody who listens to it too. It's a really fascinating profession that you're in. Uh, I learned a ton. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll keep drinking your product downstream. Sounds good. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Max. All right. Well, uh, thanks again to Max Coleman of Coleman Farms. Uh, we were also out there, as you know, from an earlier podcast uh, at the harvest time. We mentioned it during the pod. Uh, pod. He was a, a gracious host then and a great interview today. It was fascinating stuff. All our interviews were fascinating, but um, I have to say I I rarely walk away feeling so much more educated. Yeah, yeah, I learned a ton. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. So thanks again for taking the time, Max. Indeed. All right, well, we have a little bit of time left, so we should get to the mailbag, which has mail. It does have mail. We have a, a such a, a plump mailbag, we're going to have to uh, delay some of it for uh, the next week's podcast. Yes. So the first uh, piece we have, we had two items from Dan, Dan uh, Kutsukrio, uh, who... Fortunately, gave me his uh, pronunciation because we've gotten stuff from Dan before, and I pronounced it Kutsukreo, so I think he remembered my mispronunciation. So yes, Kutsukreo. Yeah, uh, he has a really interesting point uh, observation here, and it's a longer email, and I'm going to truncate it slightly. Uh, he writes with regard to the news about all uh, AB InBev selling off. Uh, many of its craft brands. I saw a lot of takes that this was the sign of doom for craft beer in general and that it's headed downhill and even Big Beer now sees this as a loser. This is, of course, distinct from the variety of doom that was predicted when these <laughs> brands were bought up by AB in the first place, which was that Big Beer would destro destroy craft. Is there something particularly negative about craft beer coverage or is it just human nature to emphasize the downside? Are there any developments in the industry in the past few years that you think are uh, worth being optimistic about with regards to the future of craft beer? I think it's a really, that's a really a, good observation. That's a super astute comment, yeah, because yeah. it's totally true. When they're buying up the craft beer vans, they're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? <laughs> they want to dominate it and crush it and kill it. And, uh, and now when they're, when they're uh, selling off, it's like, oh no, that must mean craft beer is dead. Yeah. Uh, I agree, and I don't know why it's necessarily negative. I just think, I don't think it's necessarily negative. It's just like trying to figure out what these big companies are doing. And even the big companies aren't always that sure. Yeah. We we were just talking uh, with Max about how he sells hops, but in a certain sense, you know, the market for Citra is distinct from the market for Willamette hops. Like those are non-substitutable. I think in some ways beer is that way too. And so uh, there's craft beer, there's big market beer, there's imported beers, like different markets to be in. Mm -hmm. And it is true that the overall beer market is down. Um, but I don't think that the craft segment is uh, especially bad. I know that it's it's tightened up a lot from its high point when it was in a massive growth phase and it was really easy. <laughs> Breweries were happy. But I, my, my optimism is that um, Tilray, if you wanted to take this example, Tilray, the, the company that bought these brands, yeah. Um, is trying to get out of a, a, an industry cannabis that is in real free fall yeah. and is so bad that they thought that they would shore it up with craft beer. And to me, that suggests that they see real value, like real tangible value, um, predictable, kind of knowable <laughs> value. And so they are willing to spend some millions of dollars to get into that market. Yeah, because we're in a capitalist system, growth is always the mindset we have. And if things aren't growing, 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 then it must be doing poorly. But, you know, you and I are old enough to think back to 1990, let's say, and now and think about how dramatically different the craft beer space is. Yeah. And it's not just um, craft beer in general, but it's just all of the regional stuff. And so just the, the fact that it's not growing isn't great, but we have this very mature craft beer scene that's now practically nationwide, and that's just a sea change. It's just night and day from what it used to be. So I think that's one one way to think about it. The other 
way to think about it is that these big beer companies think in terms of national and international markets. Right. And craft beer, the traction in craft beer is in local and regional markets, I think. And so I think it's important to sort of segment it. Like Anheuser-Busch doesn't give um, a hoot about Oregon market, right? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we're selling good in Oregon. Who cares? Like, yeah. you know, 10 barrels are in good in Oregon. No, what they care about is, oh, I can sell 10 barrel beer, you know, all over the country and maybe I can ship it <laughs> uh, overseas. And, um, and uh, I think that's definitely true right now. You know, it doesn't have that traction. It doesn't, doesn't look like you're going to be able to just make these big global winners out of craft beer. And that's probably the the calculus they did but it doesn't mean that these uh, local and, and uh, regional markets are are dead by any means i think they're quite they're quite alive we just reached a, a point of maturity where there's just a lot of churn right yeah and and you have to be good about your business you have to, have to make a good product and be make smart decisions and do all that stuff which mm-hmm. And you can even do expect to do anyway. Yeah, and you can even do all that stuff and still not make it. And then some new person comes along and does it again. And it's just a, it's a, it's kind of a rough. It's anyone who, who's in the restaurant business knows. Right. (laughs) It can be rough that way. Yeah, and I think that's a good example. I'd still rather open a brewery than open a restaurant. I still think it's a way better bet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Yeah, opening a restaurant by the way just seems like a nightmare. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Good for you. All of you do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Our second uh, mailbag, our second last mailbag for this podcast, we're going to uh, get to Max's own, Max Coleman, who we just interviewed, his own uh, uh, mailbag entry that we referenced in the interview. Yeah. And this one relates back to when Patrick and I talked about going to the hop fields. And we yep. said some stuff speculatively. I gave data in air quotes. So Max is here to correct the record. <laughs> All right. So first he says about trellis size, and he did mention this um, in the interview. So German hop farms tend to have slightly taller trellises and closer to 20 to 21 feet. Most U.S. farms are closer to 18 foot trellis. New Zealand, on the other hand, tend to have shorter trellises, trellisi, trellis, uh, I think 12 to 14 feet, he thinks, maybe. Mm-hmm. He, he puts a question mark there. So he doesn't know. Uh, and less widely spaced rows. So it really depends. Yeah, it's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, and it's not just variety dependent because he's talking about 18-foot trellises for everything he grows. So Totally. Just, I don't know if it's convention or what. That's another. That's a follow-up question. That's we'll right. have to get him on. on we'll, just, we'll keep generating questions. And yeah. Max will always be in the mailbag <laughs> correcting our, our mistakes. Uh, it also might be climate-driven too, right? Right. So uh, changing varieties. If you are trying to replant a new variety in an existing hop field, usually plant the new variety in a in the drive row and then move the posts out of the original row into where the new variety is. <gasps> what a good idea! It's a really good idea. It's a and he actually included an a little graphic which you can't put on the radio, uh, which which demonstrated this. Which yeah. Is pretty so cool. between the rows of hops, you have a space where you can take your little tractor or your truck or whatever it is. Um, but if you want to plant a new variety, it takes time. So I assume you plant that there and then get one more harvest out of the existing ones, or is it just because it's it's new ground? This is for Max. All right, Max. Letter. Max, we need more <laughs> info. It would seem it would be hard to have the existing ones remain because then where do you drive? But maybe. Right. Uh, and then yields. Oregon is a little different than Washington and Idaho, where you can get a commercial yield, though not a full 100% yield yield in the year you plant he mentions this in the, in the interview yeah the baby in, year or whatever. yeah the baby year in oregon most farms don't string the field until the year after planting so he was explaining that and then that's about a 70 to 80 percent harvest he thinks usually yeah. and then it's the year after that where you get the 100 percent harvest so the the washington hop growers have it easy they can just plant something and get a yield right away yeah they do there is one more thing here on the flip the thing oh what do you know oh and that that was even not the end of that one comment uh oh there's the baby year thing yeah but i just we just said that so that's fine okay and then finally field age there can be a drop off in yield as fields age though it can be a variety in field dependent some will still produce commercial yields for up to 40 years some of the replanting that has happened happened with some varieties had more to do with the plant viruses and viroids developing yeah, so as the field ages, I guess the nutrients are slowly leached away and then more viruses and viroids can start developing and things like that. So Yeah, uh, it's hard although, to do it's hard to do field rotation 
in different crops because you've got all that infrastructure, all the trellises. Well, and there are perennials too, right? So you're you're not replanting every year, and right. that's that's I think that's kind of a it's worth mentioning. It's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that if you can do perennial stuff, I think it's a little bit better on the environment to have those things in there and they mm-hmm. retain water better and you don't disturb the soil as much. So yeah, hops are kind of cool that way. But anyway, all right. Well, thanks for Max for the interview, and thanks Max for the mailbag entry. Indeed, and uh, apparently this will be a continually iterative process where we finally learn everything there is to know about hops <laughs> and hop growing and hop business. Indeed. Okay, well, uh, that about uh, wraps it up for the show. We're just out of time, so I should mention a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeerVanaBlog.com or on Twitter and Instagram at BeerVanaPod. Jeff blogs at the BeerVanaBlog, and he tweets at BeerVana. And Patrick tweets at BeerNomics. And, uh, yeah, I should get some – I'll get I'll get some Wisconsin photos up on the Insta. Cool. Because we already did the hop photos. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't have anything to cheers with, but also I'll say um, bye, Jeff. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. I'll say cheers anyway. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>